Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We have an exciting show for you tonight. I love history, and when Paula comes up with these fantastic stories like this, I can't wait to edit them. That's when I get to listen to them, actually, is what during the editing process. So I get to hear them just before you do. So let's hurry up and go over this week in review real quick so we can jump right in. Last week, Paula and I brought you the story of Cheryl Fossil. Cheryl's remains were discovered by a couple of boys who were fishing. No one was ever convicted of her murder, but 30 years later, the family would fight and win a different type of justice. Then, Wednesday night, Ohio Mysteries Backroads' Dan and Mike told us about Blanche Noyes, who was a pioneering aviator out of Cleveland, Ohio, and was the first licensed female pilot. This is only part one, so make sure you tune in Wednesday night for the next episode on Ohio Mysteries Backroads. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal telling stories just like this one, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. We've done several episodes about the War of 1812. That war was a big deal for Ohio. In some ways, it was even a war for Ohio. The American Revolution had been won about 30 years earlier. The colonies fought and died and sacrificed and won their independence from Great Britain. And then the young United States did what a lot of countries do. They sought to expand. They started moving into the West, which at the time was Ohio. They acquired land by many means, by fighting, through treaties, by outright purchasing it from native tribes. This was a threat to Britain, which still owned Canada and wanted to stop America's march westward. And it was a threat to Native American tribes who hadn't given away land to the Americans, Those tribes formed a confederation to join Britain in the resistance, and it was led by none other than one of my favorite historical people, Tecumseh, an Ohio-born chief who wanted to secure his people's ancestral homeland. One might think that in such a war, the American Navy wouldn't have much of a role to play, 
America is marching westward. The Indians in and around Ohio are already there to try and stop them. And the Britons are already there too. They occupy a fort in Detroit. But we in Ohio know better because we know our northern border is a big old lake. And both sides knew nobody was going to win this war without controlling Lake Erie. We've briefly mentioned the Battle of Lake Erie in a couple of other podcast episodes, but we've never done an episode just on that event. It's not that much of a stretch to think if the British had won control of the lake and stopped America's expansion into Ohio, good chance the Brits would eventually have coveted the land itself and today would be Canadians. So, Let's give this very important battle the attention it is due. First, let's set the stage so you have some context. When the War of 1812 broke out, the Brits seized control of Lake Erie immediately and easily. They had a small force of warships, the Queen Charlotte, the General Hunter, and the Lady Prevost. The Americans had only the USS Adams near Detroit, which wasn't even in service yet. Now, since the Americans were the ones to declare war, they backed up their threat by sending Brigadier General William Hall on land to invade the British territory in Canada by way of Detroit. At this time, the U.S. was in control of Detroit, but Hull's invasion of Canada did not go well, in part because the Brits controlled Lake Erie and they could move troops about at will. Hull retreated and surrendered Detroit. The Brits even took our only ship, the Adams. The U.S. knew if they were serious about this war, they'd better get busy building some more. And the first step toward that effort came late in 1812, when Paul Hamilton, the United States Secretary of the Navy, got a visit from Daniel Dobbins, a longtime American mariner on Lake Erie who had escaped capture in Detroit and wanted to share what he knew about the British forces on the lake. This helped the Navy steer clear of where the Brits were and select Presque Isle in Erie, Pennsylvania as the place where they would build the ships they needed to confront the British fleet. Presque Isle is on the east end of the lake, completely opposite of the British force on the west end. Before the year was out, the Americans had assembled four gunboats, and early the next year, in 1813, they had added two corvettes, or small warships. Their leader was to be Oliver Hazard Perry, the 28-year-old naval commander born in Rhode Island to a naval dynasty. He was the descendant of generations of Navy commanders on both sides of his family. The Commodore was sent to Presque Isle to take command in March of 1813, and he arranged for even more vessels to be sent to Presque Isle by towing them up the Niagara River by draft oxen. About the same time Commodore Perry was put in charge on the U.S. side, 
the British were appointing their own commander, Robert Barclay. He was in place by June the 10th. That summer, he added a couple more vessels to his fleet, as well as a new warship, the HMS Detroit, built in the King's Shipyard in Amherstburg. That's near Detroit, but on the Ontario side of the Detroit River. Unfortunately for the Brits, guns that were intended for the Detroit were intercepted by American forces. So the Detroit had to be completed by scavenging whatever guns they could find lying around Amherstburg, while the Americans got to enjoy some fresh and free arms for their own ships. By mid-July of 1813, the American squadron was almost complete, but it was far from secret by now. The Brits had already spotted them there. And for 10 days, at the end of July, they blockaded Presque Isle. However, Captain Barclay couldn't sail in to attack the American ships and finish the job because there was a sandbar across the mouth of the bay. The Americans knew the sandbar was going to be an issue when it came time to move their ships out into the lake, but it turned out to be a gamble worth making because the British couldn't reach them. Now, on July the 29th, after 10 days, Barclay had to lift the blockade temporarily because they had run out of supplies and there was some bad weather. No problem. They fully expected the American fleet to be right where they were on the other side of that sandbar when they returned. But as soon as they were gone, Commodore Perry immediately began to move his vessels across the sandbar. This was an exhausting task. Everything, including the heavy guns, had to be removed from all the boats to make the ships light enough to cross that sandbar. Four days later, when the British came back, they found most of the ships out in the lake, forming a line so confidently that Barclay quickly retreated and hurried back to Amherstburg to wait for the completion of the new warship, the Detroit. Once all the American ships were out of the harbor and safely into the lake, Perry led them to Putten Bay. It's not all that far from Amherstburg. Oh, first he had to parade the fleet past the Amherstburg fort to show them off. Also, by anchoring them at Putten Bay, it effectively blockaded Barclay, since you'd have to go past the American ships to leave Amherstburg. After five weeks of that, Barclay's troops, sailors, and a large number of Indian allies, warriors and their families, ran out of supplies. Barclay had no choice. He needed to face off with the American fleet. Perry knew this conflict was coming. In the days before the battle, he told his friend, Purser Samuel Hamilton, that he wanted a battle flag to signal to his fleet when to engage the enemy. Hamilton suggested using the dying words of Perry's good friend, Captain James Lawrence, who had said, don't give up the ship. Hamilton had the flag sewn by the women of Erie and presented it to Perry the day before the battle. That flag would become an icon 
in American naval history. So, let's do a play-by-play of the battle. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. The Battle of Lake Erie was fought September 10, 1813. It pitted nine vessels of the United States Navy against six vessels of the British Royal Navy. Don't make the mistake of thinking that means the British were outnumbered. This was the British Navy. They had spent hundreds of years colonizing the world. You know, they used to say the sun never set on the British Empire. Well, that was due to the skill and experience of the British Navy. There was none better. The morning of September 10, the American fleet was at Put-in-Bay. For those who don't know, that's an Ohio island in Lake Erie, part of Ottawa County in the northwest part of the state. Today, it's a resort island reached by ferry. You can see Cedar Point and Toledo from it. Commodore Perry and his American squadron of nine ships are anchored there. And suddenly, they see the British squadron of Commander Robert Barclay headed for them across the lake from the west. Six ships in all. So, the anchors of the American ships are pulled up and Perry's Navy heads for the enemy. The wind was so light, nobody was moving fast. This was really a slow-motion battle. But the Americans slowly closed the gap. The first shot, however, was fired from the HMS Detroit at 11.45 a.m. The Detroit was now the Royal Navy's most powerful ship on Lake Erie, with 20 guns. Like all the ships in this battle, it was powered by massive sails billowing in the wind. So when you picture this, imagine those old school ships and the black puffs of smoke coming from their big guns. The HMS Detroit, with Barclay aboard, lined itself directly up with the USS Lawrence. That was Commodore Perry's flagship, named for his late friend. The first shot from a 24-pounder long gun, missed the Lawrence, but the second shot hit. And just like that, the Lawrence was already in big trouble. It wasn't in range yet to return fire. They had short, heavy guns, similar to cannons, but the wind wasn't pushing them close enough, fast enough, to use them. So the Detroit, with its long guns, began to pummel the Lawrence with Commodore Perry aboard and continued that way 
unanswered for at least 20 minutes. By the time the Lawrence was in a position to fire back, the HMS Queen Charlotte had moved up the battle line, adding her guns and knocking the Lawrence out of the battle altogether. During this time, the other ships were engaging each other, and the American gunboats at the rear of the American line were having great success reaching the British ships in the center of the action. Some of them were even reaching the Detroit and the Queen Charlotte. But Perry himself was in peril aboard the USS Lawrence, which had been reduced to a wreck. 80% of the crew was killed or wounded. The only person aboard to even try to tend to their wounds was a medical assistant named Usher Parsons. The fleet's surgeons were both sick with malaria and not in this battle. Perry had no choice but to abandon the Lawrence. He pulled down his personal pennant, which bore the motto, Don't Give Up the Ship, and he was rowed a half mile through heavy gunfire to the USS Niagara. His personal servant, a black sailor named Cyrus Tiffany, accompanied him and protected him on this perilous journey. Just a little about Cyrus Tiffany. He was an elderly man. They called him Old Tiffany. He was a free black man from Massachusetts, which is where he met Perry, and Perry asked him to be his personal servant. During the Battle of Lake Erie, Perry commanded Tiffany to stand with a musket on the berth deck and make sure no soldiers avoided fighting by staying below deck. They said while the rowboat was taking Perry from the USS Lawrence to the USS Niagara, Tiffany used his body to shield Perry and keep him safe. It's also worth noting that 10% of the sailors aboard Perry's ships were black men. Perry believed because of their experience in maritime trades that African Americans possessed special skills that would help his campaign on Lake Erie. Okay, let's get back to the fight. When the USS Lawrence surrendered, the gunfight quieted briefly. The Brits had their hands full. The Detroit and the Queen Charlotte may have taken out the Lawrence, but they had serious damaged rigging, and they collided into each other. Captain Barclay, aboard the Detroit, had been severely wounded himself, and almost every senior officer on the ship had been killed or injured. Most of the smaller British vessels were also disabled and drifting. Still, as we would learn later, the British fully expected the Americans had had enough and were certain Perry would turn the Niagara about and lead the other American ships away in retreat. <laughs> Instead, Perry doubled down. He steered the Niagara toward Barclay's damaged ships while calling for his schooners to close in as well. The wind had picked up by now, and they accomplished this quickly. The British were still trying to untangle their ships, the Detroit and the Queen Charlotte, even as they were taking gunfire. They could offer no resistance. At 3 p.m., both ships surrendered. 
Seeing this, the four smaller British vessels turned and attempted to flee, but the Americans were not going to let them go. They overtook the rest of the squadron, and the ship surrendered. It was all over in about three hours. Although Commodore Perry won the battle while he was on the Niagara, he had the British leaders brought to him on the deck of the wrecked Lawrence to receive their official surrender. In all, the British had 41 sailors and officers killed and 94 more wounded. And, as I said, among them was Captain Barclay. Barclay had previously lost his left arm in 1809. In the Battle of Lake Erie, he ended up losing his leg and a part of his thigh, and the one arm he did have left was rendered permanently motionless. On the American side, 29 sailors and officers were killed and 94 were wounded, most of those casualties coming from the USS Lawrence. Immediately after the battle was done, while Perry was still aboard the Niagara, he sat down to compose his now-famous message to General William Henry Harrison, a future president, one of eight Ohio would send to the White House. In pencil, on the back of an old envelope, Perry wrote, Dear General, we have met the enemy, and they are ours. He sent his next message to Secretary of the Navy William Jones. Sir, it has pleased the Almighty to give to the arms of the United States a signal victory over their enemies on this lake. The British squadron, consisting of two ships, two brigs, one schooner, and one sloop, have this moment surrendered to the force under my command after a sharp conflict. Perry's vessels and his six prizes were all taken to West Sister Island. That's another Ohio island farther west of Putin Bay, so repairs could begin immediately. The three most battered of the ships, the USS Lawrence and the British ships Detroit and Queen Charlotte, were converted into hospital ships. As if those ships hadn't been through enough, a gale swept the lake three days after the battle on September 13 and ripped the masts off the Detroit and the Queen Charlotte. The wounded aboard were all ferried to Erie, Pennsylvania to continue their recovery. The Lawrence was eventually restored to service by the next year, but the two British ships were reduced to hulks. Once the ships were patched up, so this is about two weeks after the battle, Perry used them to ferry 2,500 soldiers to that King's Naval Yard site in Amherstburg, Ontario, capturing it without opposition. The Brits had already gone. That very same day, America sent a 1,000 mounted troops by land to the fort at Detroit, also recapturing it without a fight. The British were already retreating into Ontario. Tecumseh, the Ohio-born Indian leader whose coalition was allied with the British, pleaded with them not to flee. 
But when they retreated, Tecumseh and his warriors, with no supplies or protection for themselves, had little choice but to go with them. And in their retreat, they were pursued by General William Henry Harrison. He caught up with the British and Tecumseh's warriors on October the 5th at what is called the Battle of the Thames on the Thames River. It was there that Tecumseh and his second-in-command, Wyandotte Chief Roundhead, were both killed. After the Battle of Lake Erie, Captain Barclay and his surviving officers underwent an investigation and a court-martial, but were found to have conducted themselves in the most gallant manner. The trial ruled the defeat was the result of American numerical superiority, an insufficient number of able seamen, and the early fall of superior officers during the action. Now, the victory on the lake had long-lasting benefits. The Americans controlled it for the remainder of the war, a fact that helped it win other battles, and removed the threat of a British attack on Ohio, Pennsylvania, and western New York. In 1820, the Lawrence and Niagara, which had gone to rot by then, were intentionally sunk near Misery Bay in Lake Erie. Fifty-five years after that, the Lawrence was raised and moved to Philadelphia to be displayed at the 1876 Centennial Exposition. That's where it was later that year when the pavilion that housed the ship caught fire and the ship was burned. The Niagara was later raised as well and restored in 1913, a hundred years after the battle. But she subsequently fell into disrepair. She was taken apart and portions of her were used in a reconstructed Niagara, which is now on view in Erie, Pennsylvania. For the past 100 years or so, Putin Bay has been home to the Perry Victory and International Peace Memorial, which commemorates the Battle of Lake Erie and celebrates the lasting peace between the U.S., Canada, and Britain following the war. Six of the officers who died during that battle, three American and three British, are buried beneath the stone floor of the monument and carved into the walls of the rotunda are all the men who were killed or injured. The 100-year-old monument is 352 feet tall, and you can take an elevator to the top. On a clear day, you'll have no trouble seeing across the lake into Canada, five miles away. Last I checked, the trip costs something like 10 bucks for adults and free to kids, 15 and under, and it's open every day, all summer long. Another 101-foot-tall Perry Monument is in Erie, Pennsylvania, at the eastern end of Presque Isle, where the Lawrence and the Niagara had been built. Just one other quick note. We did an episode on Tecumseh, an incredible native leader and a very noble, well-respected man. We also did a story about how park officials in Summit County, Ohio, have spent years trying to find a naval boatyard that was built in present-day Akron, of all places. 
The Navy chose the site for its seclusion. It's in the general area of the Cuyahoga Valley National Park, and they used the Cuyahoga River to move the boats to Lake Erie. Now, the boats that were built in Akron did not take part in the Battle of Lake Erie, but they were sent up in time to carry the invasion force that was sent a couple of weeks later to Amherstburg. We'll put a link to each of those episodes in the notes for this podcast, just in case you want to continue your education on this fascinating period. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.